Welcome to the Meb Favor Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hey everybody, it's Meb. It's summertime here in Los Angeles, so we thought we would do a another topical research chat today again with Jeff. Welcome, Jeff. Welcome. You know, I thought today we'd talk a little bit, this could probably be a short one on the topic of shareholder yield, which is our second book, our first self-published book, because there's a lot of misconception going on about yield investing. Before we start, I'm going to say this one more time. T-Rex arms, alligator arms, listeners out there, take 10 seconds, go leave us a review. Again, it's anonymous. I'm not going to know who you are. Go to iTunes. Just click the number of stars. You can write something if you want or not. really appreciate it. It makes all of our effort worthwhile. So, Jeff, I'm just going to start and start jabbering. You feel free to interject at any point, ask questions, stop me, repeat something at any time. So, Dividends. You know, people love dividends. We've been talking about dividends a little bit on other podcasts. Uh, we talked a little bit about them in tax efficiency, inefficiency, but let's take a step back. And the way that we started this book was with an old Buddhist Hindu parable, and it was about the five blind men and the elephant. It exists in many different traditions, and the people change, the names change or whatnot, but usually it's a a wise man or a king or someone is having five blind people or blindfolded people touch an elephant and describe what they feel. And the blind man may feel the elephant's tail and say, I feel a rope. And the other may feel the elephant's leg and say, I feel a tree trunk or whatever it may be. And the, the moral, the takeaway from the story was always that while you may think you know what you're describing or, or understanding, it's really only part of an overall picture. And this is what we kind of led into the topic of the book with dividends, because most people, when they think about companies and stocks, they think about the operations. That's the sexy part, right? Where Tesla makes this incredible car or Facebook, you know, the, the operations of the actual company. And while it's certainly important, Equally important is the role of capital allocation. In many cases, the future success of the company that capital allocation plays is often overlooked. So there's a really good book that Buffett actually recommended a few years ago that talks all about this called The Outsiders, Eight Unconventional CEOs and Their Radically Rational Blueprint for Success. It's by Thorndike, and I'm going to read a a long quote here, so stick with me. And he says, because it's so accurate, he says, CEOs need to do two things well to be successful run their operations efficiently, and deploy the cash generated by those operations. Most CEOs and the management books they write or read focus on managing operations, which is undeniably important. Basically, CEOs have five choices for deploying capital. One, investing in existing operations. Two, acquiring other businesses. Three, paying down debt. Four, repurchasing stock. 
and three alternatives for raising it, tapping internal cash flow, issuing debt, or raising equity. Those are the toolkit. That's all you can do. Over the long term, returns for shareholders will be determined largely by the decisions the CEO makes in choosing which tools to use and which to avoid among these various options. In fact, this role just might be the most important responsibility any CEO has, and yet despite its importance, there are no courses in capital allocation at the top business schools. All right, that was a long quote, but let, let, let's review that for a second. There's only five things a company can do with its cash. All right. Again, it can reinvest in the business. So Tesla can do R&D to build new cars. It can pay down debt to the extent it has any. It could acquire another business like Tesla and Solar City just did. It could pay a dividend or it can buy back stock. That's it. That is the only things a company can do with its cash. And so if you're thinking about investing, historically, dividends, focusing on one of those, a company paying dividends has been a great way to invest. So if you go back to 1900, there is a huge stack of research on on dividends. I mean, we're talking about French Fama, you know, took dividend stocks back to the 20s. They outperform high dividend yielders, outperform low dividend yielders by about three percentage points a year. There's a great Tweedy Brown study called the High Dividend Return Advantage that has a lot of dividend studies. One of my favorite groups of professors, Dimson, Marsh, Staunton, they have the, the Triumph of the Optimist book. They looked at UK stocks back to 1900, same thing. In almost every scenario, it's even better if you compare countries based on dividend yield. They all outperform by a few percentage points a year, and depending on the time frame, could be even higher than that. And so dividends have been a wonderful way to invest, sorting on dividend stocks for as long as we can remember. One of the challenges in markets is always asking the question, is this time different? Has something changed? In many cases, it, the answer is no, that, that really people are looking at a certain time frame and thinking that that's different, but it's our, something has already occurred in history. But in dividends, there was actually structural change that happened in the early 80s. There's a couple clues to this. One is if you look at the payout ratio of dividends, it's been declining ever since the early 20th century. If you look at dividend yield, has been declining. Fewer companies are paying out less and less in dividends. So it used to almost be 100% of S&P 500 companies pay dividends. Now it's declined to about 75%. Uh, NASDAQ, it's down, I think, to around 30%. And so you take a step back and say, is that just because of the way companies preference or is there a reason for that? And SEC passed a rule in 1982 called 10B18 that gave companies safe harbor for purchasing their own stock. And there's a good paper on this called Dividends, Share Repurchases, and the Substitution Hypothesis. We'll certainly link to all these again as we always do in the show notes. Finance 101, Investing 101, many people get this wrong, is the dividends and buybacks are the exact same thing if a company's trading at intrinsic value and there's no tax differences. It's literally the same equation. And most people don't really understand that. But what happens is if you incentivize companies to buy back stock by having different tax rates, which we've had over time. So in, in half of the past 40 years, dividends have been taxed at higher rates than long-term capital gains. And so if you look at charts during tax periods, dividends were disadvantaged for most of the 80s. And so fewer companies started paying out less in dividends. Then a similar tax rate for the early 90s, disadvantaged again till 04. And it changes how companies behave. And that's not just in the US. There's paper, um, one called 
Let's see. It's called Disappearing Dividends, Changing Firm Characteristics. And there's another one called Taxation Dividends and Share Repurchases. And they find that, you know, if you look at dividends and share repurchases across countries, that depending on the tax regime changes absolutely how they behave. And that makes sense. And so what you've seen, particularly in the U.S., starting in the early 80s, but really ramping up in the late 90s, is buybacks have become a much, much bigger part of how a company distributes its cash. So really, it happened, I think, for the first time in the late 90s, dividends surpassed, or sorry, buybacks surpassed dividends as a route for companies to distribute cash to the shareholders. And in, I believe every year since, have surpassed dividends as the amount that, that people have paid out. Let me cut you off real quick on that. Just want your thoughts on whether or not you truly believe that that is altruistic versus companies realizing that, hey, yeah, we can return some cash to shareholders, but it doesn't hurt that we're also potentially manipulating earnings per share by buying back our own shares here. I mean, is that really... It's. I, I used to be much more negative on CEOs' ability and, and their reasoning for buying back shares. So yes, there is some share-based compensation. And it's also important, by the way, to look at net buybacks. So one easy way to do that is just simply look at shares outstanding change. Because if you look at simply how many shares a company is buying back, it's ignoring how many shares they're issuing. And a lot of tech companies, a lot of companies that issue a lot of options-based compensation are serial diluters, where meaning they're, they're diluting their shareholders. And so that's much worse than, than a company buying back stock, in my opinion. So, so as a shareholder, you don't want to get diluted. So you have to look at net buybacks or net issuance. So I used to be much more pessimistic on the CEOs because in general, buybacks and mergers and acquisitions are much more volatile than dividends and reinvesting in a business, ca- capital expenditures. So both of those are very low volatility, but acquisitions and buybacks tend to follow the business cycle a little more. So you see them peak when times are good. You see them kind of bottom out during recessions as well as big bear markets. And so my thoughts of if you take a look at aggregate buybacks, you often say, huh, it looks like they're buying a lot at the top and selling at the bottom. What a bunch of morons. But a buddy of ours, Patrick O'Shaughnessy, has often looked, and we'll get to this in a minute, is it looking at when the CEOs buy back stock based on their conviction levels, meaning the guys that are buying back, say, 1% of their stock per year versus the guys that are buying back 5% versus the guys that are buying back 10%. And you find some really interesting takeaways in the ones that where the, the guys that are buying back the stock that's really cheap are tend to be the high conviction ones. So the ones that are buying back the most stock, the, uh, the stocks are actually cheap. The ones that are issuing the most stock, the stocks are actually expensive. So they're actually, you know, the takeaway is that they're no dummies. However, are there a bunch of perverse incentives? I absolutely, you know, the, the share-based compensation being one as well as the options. But in general, the whole point of kind of that intro is saying, look, the distribution method by which people, uh, companies distribute cash has changed. The old John Maynard Keynes quote, he says, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? Right? So, all right, you, if you are just looking at dividends at this point, you're literally missing half of the coin. If you're, if you just look at buybacks, you're missing the up other side of the coin. If you do either one of those alone, you're making the same very basic investing mistake. And it's a very basic one. And, and you see this happen all across the industry. And so what, what a good takeaway is that, if you look at the aggregate amount, you know, while dividend yields are low on the S&P, if you include buybacks, then the actual distribution amount isn't so bad. 
So it's what we call shareholder yield. And the academic, there's a lot of different phrases for this. So we call it shareholder yield, which is dividends and net buybacks. We actually include debt pay down, but because most of the world doesn't, we'll just call it dividends and, and, um, and buybacks. It makes it a little easier. And so that theoretically makes sense. So if you're looking at buybacks, you know, Buffett says if a company's trading, and this is the whole key with the buybacks is where does the stock trade? Mm-hmm. Buffett always says if a company's trading below intrinsic value, there's no better use for that company's cash than to buy back their stock. And Buffett's an interesting example because Berkshire's never paid out a dividend and that's not quite right because they paid out a 10 cent one in 1967 and he's famously joked that he must have been in the bathroom when they authorized that that dividend, but they've never <laughs> paid out a dividend. But he said many times, he said, I'm ready to buy back stock, but you have to have an objective measure that it's undervalued. So with Berkshire, he used to say 1.1 times book We'll be buying stock hand over fist. I think he bumped that up to either 1.2 or 1.3 times book, and it's gotten pretty close over the years. But you need to have an objective measure. If you're a CEO that just says, "Hey, you know," most CEOs are always going to think their stock's cheap because a lot of CEOs have that sort of empire building kind of approach to markets. But in general, if you have an objective methodology, which to buy back a dollar's worth of assets for 80, 70, 60 cents, then it's a wonderful way to invest. So do you suggest any specific objective measures like that in your book? Anything tangible to look at? We, we do. And if you're looking at value in general, remember, all the value indicators are similar. They, t- they, have, they have different flavors. So we like to use a value composite, meaning we'll look at like five, six, seven of the value indicators, blend them. So you get a good idea across a number of them if something's cheap or if something's expensive. And the, and the value is the big sort of lever in this equation where the last thing you want is a company buying back 5% of their shares that's expensive. That makes no sense. And so a lot of the buyback funds don't have a value filter. Same as a lot of the dividend funds don't have a value filter. So it's a moronic idea in my mind to buy high dividend stocks or high buyback stocks that are expensive. It's, it's in O'Shaughnessy. There's some good research here too. This talked about putting it into quadrants of shareholder yield where you're buying back shareholder yields companies that are cheap stocks versus expensive. And obviously the cheap ones do much better. So your value screen would start any discussion before we even get to this. Yeah, right? so you can either you can do value first, then shareholder yield, or shareholder yield first, then value. You kind of end up in the same place. You know, you get rid of you get rid of the, the bad stuff eventually. But but let me let me take a step back and then we'll talk a little bit more about the investing side. And so uh, one of our favorite researchers, Michael Malbison, had has a great paper called Share Repurchases from All Angles. And I'll read his quote just to give you a little more color. And he says, the purpose of a company is to maximize long-term value. As such, the prime responsibility of a management team is to invest financial, physical, and human capital at a rate in excess of the opportunity cost of capital. Operationally, this means identifying and executing strategies that deliver excess returns. Outstanding executives assess the attractiveness of various alternatives and deploy capital where value is highest. This not only captures investments, including CapEx, working capital and acquisitions, but also share buybacks. There are cases where buying back shares provides more value to continuing shareholders than investing in the business does. Astute capital allocators understand this. And at a certain size, a lot of companies, you know, when you're at Apple size, how many projects are you going to be able to build that are going to be able to generate the return they need for it to move the needle on their stock? You know, and so in many cases, a lot of companies, they get that size, they have to start distributing their cash flows. Otherwise, they can't use it. 
So what else? Let's see. So we talked about intrinsic value. So how has this worked? You know, and so there's a lot of academic studies that have looked at dividends and buybacks and shareholder yield. One comment just, just for color, like the S&P today, to give you an example, S&P yields about 1.57%, somewhere around there, the, the 2% maybe, I think. Okay. Russell's even less. But if you look at the median stock in Russell, it's like 0.3%. If you look at the median stock in the S&P, 1.7% dividend, so low. If you look at the median buyback of those companies in those indexes, for the Russell, it's negative. So you're actually owning companies that are issuing stock. And for the S&P, depending on if you look at average or median, but it's basically zero. So you end up with a shareholder yield or net payout yield that's really no different from the dividend yield. And in many cases, that that's the case. If you were to sort by shareholder yield, so if you sorted the Russell and bought the top quartile, top 25% of stocks, you end up with a higher dividend yield than the S&P. So it's around two. But you tack on about a 3 to 4% buyback yield. And so you end up with a, a shareholder yield, what we'd call around 6 or 7%. If you include debt, you get up to around 9%. So you end up with a much higher cash distribution. And then one of the cool studies from SockGen was that they showed that this actually correlated very highly with free cash flow characteristics. So a company that was cheap on price to free cash flow because, and that makes sense. So for these companies to be distributing 7% of their cash and using it, they must have the cash in the first place. Yeah. Are we in essence really just, these are screens to sniff out companies that are operationally doing a lot of good things uh, with their cash. I mean, that's really, we're finding good value here. Yeah. Right? You end up with, with higher quality companies. So if you go back and test this, so O'Shaughnessy's taking it back to the 20s. We took it back to the 70s in our book. And we said, for example, here, here's the numbers back. Or sorry, we took it back to 1982, which is the modern era of buybacks. But again, O'Shaughnessy took it back to the 20s. Since 82, S&P did 11% a year, rounding up. Pretty awesome. This is 82 to 2011. And we're actually going to update this book probably in the next year. Dividend yield, 13.4. Buyback yield, 13.2. So both of them beat the S&P by about two percentage points a year. That's great. A little over two percentage points. Shareholder yield did 15%. And so it's kind of this holistic way of looking at it. And the, the example I used to give in talks was if you went up to your niece or nephew and said, look, I'm going to give you a couple of choices. I'll give you $20 cash, choice A. Choice B, I'll give you a $20 Amazon gift card. Choice C, I'll give you a $20 Amazon gift card, but you give me $20 cash. Or choice D, I'll give you a $20 gift card and give you $20 cash. Every child on the planet is going to take D, right? The math, you get $40 instead of getting 20 through various payments or C, getting a netted out zero. And that's the way we, I look at dividends and buybacks. So, you know, dividends or buybacks, how you pay them out, everyone would always choose the higher distribution in my mind. But people, for whatever reason, are preconditioned to to not like buybacks and to much prefer dividends. I think this is especially... It's less visible. So many investors are sort of preconditioned to need that income generation. And, and it's, it is hard, too. So you go to a lot of websites, you can't find buyback yield as easily as you can find dividend yield. It's, it, you know, it requires you to dig around, have a little extra calculation. Y charts is a good site for this. And in part of it's the brand. So we did an article called the dividend challenge where we were basically talking about the old school. If you remember the Pepsi taste tests where Pepsi would do these blind taste tests with 
Pepsi and Coke, almost always found that people preferred Pepsi. And then Coke would do the same tests and, and much to their dismay, also found that people preferred Pepsi. And if you remember, if you then told people what they were ahead of time and did the blind taste, it, you showed them, hey, this is Coke, this is Pepsi, then they preferred Coke. And, and Coke always vastly out, outsold Pepsi. You know, so a lot of it has to do with the brand. So is it the association you have with the Coke commercials and the polar bear or Santa Claus or drinking Coke as a kid or whatever it may be? It's the brand of Coke. And it actually, if you remember, it actually went, led to the disastrous decision where people said the blind taste test, Coke said, well, crap, it's clearly because Pepsi is sweeter. We're now going to launch new Coke. So that led to the abomination known, known as new Coke. But really it was about the brand. So dividends, you could say they have a great brand. This becomes dangerous though. So a couple of things. One, if you look at dividend stock valuations now, and we've talked about this a lot before. So this is probably the last time I'm going to mention this on the podcast. And you take dividends have worked historically because they're a value tilt. And dividends historically traded at a 20 to 40% discount to the overall market based on valuations. And this goes going back to the 60s. For the first time in the past few years, dividend stocks not only don't trade at a discount, they trade at a premium to the overall market. This hasn't occurred in the 50, 60 years prior, really until the last few years. And a lot of this has to do with the, the chase for yield and the chase for people looking for income anywhere. Now, no one wanted dividend stocks in 99 when they traded the biggest valuation discount ever to dividends. Again, you don't have to believe me. Go to Morningstar, type in any of the top five largest dividend ETFs or mutual funds. And the caveat is if they have a valuation filter, this is a little different, but, but particularly the biggest, which manages over $20 billion, type that in, look at the holdings, and look at the valuation. And it has, and I believe, I'll have to recheck, in every case, is more expensive than the S&P 500 and ironically has a lower dividend yield than the S&P 500. So you're ending up with these very expensive companies. They're having a monster year. If you look at utilities, they're up 20%, but they have a PE over 20. And we're talking about utilities here. P, P, you know, This is much higher than they normally have been. And you're seeing this echo in other places where money has flowed into. It's echoing into low vol stocks. It's echoing into certain other areas of smart beta. It's problematic. So it's problematic, one, because dividends are expensive. It's problematic, two, for if and when rates ever go up. That could be 2016. It could be 2018. It could be 2020. Who knows? If and when we have a interest rate rising cycle, dividends historically underperform in a rising rate environment. And so I think O'Shaughnessy takes it back to 19, 1920s, I think, 1927, and found that the average... In the average rising rate environment, U.S. dividend stocks underperform the broad market by 2.5% a year, whereas shareholder yield strategies outperform by 1.5% a year. And shareholder yield outperform in 12 out of 16 rising rates where dividends were only half. Okay, so this is a little red flagish. So does that mean then that you have to weight these various yields differently rather than look at the total net payout ratio? I mean, it could be you could have two different companies with the same net payout ratio, but different mixes of how you got there. There's, McKinsey did a study that showed that people didn't care about the mix. All they cared was the aggregate amount. And so if you look at buyback indexes right now, so shareholder yield strategies look more similar to a buyback index because a buyback index has a reasonable dividend yield, but, but not much, but it has a big fat buyback yield because companies have been buying back stock hand over fist. So it ends up looking more like a shareholder yield index currently. 
That doesn't mean it always will. So in bad times, big bear market companies stop buying back stock. So then what are you going to do with the buyback index? If you have all of a sudden companies that aren't buying back stock, what happens to your index? I have no idea. You know, it, it, it literally, it's, it's the most nonsensical investment approach I could think I could ever think of. You know, a lot of people talk about back tests and they'll say, well, you know, I think Vanguard did a study that showed back test returns for how many ever, 10 years prior to publication and then post publication of that index. And, you know, actually for the shareholder yield, I mean, we've been writing about this since I think 08, but the shareholder yield strategy post publication of the book actually had its best year after publication, I think 2014 shareholder yield had a monster year. Anyway, uh, you know, we vastly prefer the strategy. We think it makes a lot more sense than, than traditional dividend strategy and particularly right now. I haven't heard you talk too much about the, the debt part of all of this. Do you give that equal weight? Well, so there's been a lot of papers. There's another paper called, I think something like total assets. That might not be the name of the paper, but what it's basically saying is if you look at total assets of the firm, because historically, Mergers and acquisitions have not been, have not helped stock returns. So, or, or companies. So in general, they're, they destroy value. So any, basically any sort of adding of assets and empire building is not something you want with a company. But Charlie Munger famously says, look for the cannibals, meaning look for the companies that are eating themselves, the share count. You know, the debt side is you get a lot more correlation with high quality, low leverage. This helps you out during bear markets. Um, when times are good, it's the opposite. You know, the more levered companies work better, but low leverage, low debt is something that's easier to live with. Usually has lower vol, lower drawdowns, particularly during bear market, which we haven't seen in going on almost 10 years now, you know, eight years. So the debt pay down side is a similar metric. It's a little squishier for a number of reasons, but I think it's an important component. Again, it's shown to add value over time, but it's not the two biggest ones to me are, are dividends and buybacks. Yeah, I mean, I think they're clearly the biggest. But I think in today's low rate environment, if you're able to buy back hundred million dollars worth of debt at you know five per six percent and reissue the same amount at three percent, I mean that's a right. pretty solid. Trade you know, there. again, it goes back to the equation of where does the CEO find the best return on the capital? Maybe you have an early stage tech company that's just crushing it and they have a high return on capital. Well, they shouldn't be paying out dividends and, and buybacks. Oh, so there's a couple of the things you can do to this strategy. So one, we show in the book that adding a momentum sort on the final shareholder yield works great, adds some performance. You know, we look at it in foreign markets and foreign markets in general have, they don't have the same culture of buybacks in the developed and emerging market as much as the US does. That's changing. So you're seeing it more in Japan, you're seeing it more in places as they're becoming more shareholder activism, more shareholder friendly, to where the buybacks are becoming more commonplace. But up till now, it's been a more US-centric phenomenon. Any more thoughts before we wind up? Yeah, yeah, a few. Initially, I think the quote you gave us talked about the, the five ways that managers could allocate their capital. And shareholder yield, we've really focused on three, the dividend yield, the net buyback yield, and then the, the, uh, the debt yield. So I haven't really heard you talk much about using money to, uh, to reinvest in the business as much. And I wonder if you know, reinvestment really is needed to, I guess, grow future returns, your future cash flows. 
So if you're really looking only at how you're using money for the uh, the returns to shareholders, is that inherently backward looking? Whereas you want to be involved with companies that are you know fueling their future growth and their future cash flows. Well, like, sure. If you can t- tell you what, if you can tell me the future growth. <laughs> accurately and you know what these companies are going to invent five years from now but no i mean i think earnings growth there's a lot of metrics that i think would correlate nicely with a with a growing company you know but you got to balance that historically some of the better metrics is is value so you want to be buying cheap companies that are high quality so i'd so in our screens that we use for our funds we incorporate a number of variables so it's not just shareholder yield although i think that's fine but we include measures for quality we include measures for value and then a final sort on momentum as well but yeah i mean look you you want a great company that has a great business i mean ideally that's the the trifecta where you have a company that's crushing it on the operational side you know they're not doing a bunch of stupid m&a and they're distributing lots of free cash flow which means they have a lot of free cash flow in the first place they kind of all come together and if you look at a laundry list of shareholder yield companies, you it's a lot of companies you would expect to be very high quality companies. If you look at a lot of high dividend companies, the highest it's often poorly understood, the highest quartile or quintile of dividend yield isn't the highest performer. It's actually the next 20% down. And it's because the top dividend yielders, you don't realize that dividend yield. So you may have an eight, nine, ten percent dividend yielder, but they very rarely pay that out. And on top of that, they're crappy companies. They typically have a high uh, leverage, so they're paying out way too much of their cash flow as earnings. And so traditionally, they're not the best performers. Whereas in shareholder yield, the highest fractile is the best performer, which is the way you want to see it kind of kind of happen. Okay. I can see total shareholder yield being a very valuable. On a, on a relative basis, for instance, look at the uh, the net payout of Apple compared to Tesla, and you would assume Apple's is going to be significantly more than Tesla's. On an absolute basis, do you find that it's helpful to use this looking at Apple's, I guess, historical net payout and comparing where they are now to where they were three years well, the, ago? The buybacks buybacks tend to be a little more transient. So you have people that will announce buybacks and then what they actually do. And we always do what they do rather than what they say. And so we'll look at share shares outstanding over the past year. You could average it over the past three years, but you want to see someone that's consistently buying back stock or has a methodology for it. And um, there's research has shown there's a white paper that says there's basically a buyback echo. So the buyback effect this year continues for the next four years, I think four or five years. So, but it, but it can be more transient, which makes it tough. And then people, one of, here's one of the biggest kind of illuminations, I think for a lot of people, you can have a company that has say a 3% dividend yield, but is actually issuing 4% shares per year, which means you actually have a negative yield. So you may think Mm -hmm. you have this great company, 3% dividend yield, you're getting this fat dividend yield, but you know, in the right, with their right hand, they're picking your pocket by issuing shares, which is so what, if you're a dividend, like, like, look, fun, fine. I don't care. Ignore buybacks to, to your peril, but at least take a, take a look at share issuance because a lot of these companies are just serial diluters. So there's about 80% of companies we call shareholder friendly, which means they have a positive yield of some sort, but about 20% have negative yields. We call these the capital destroyers. That's not a trivial amount. And so just being able to get rid of, you know, we always talk about factor screening and value where we screen off, we, we pick the best stuff, the cheapest stuff with the best cash flows or whatever. 
but you're also avoiding the really crappy stuff. And by having a market cap weighted index or equal weighted, you're guaranteed to own the stuff that's serially diluting you by 3%. You're guaranteed to own the expensive stuff. You're guaranteed to own the over leveraged stuff. And in general, I don't think that's a, you know, a smart approach to investing. So uh, for a lot of people that, it, that do just dividends and they're ignoring not only buybacks, but also valuation, I think it's a very, very subpar way to go about investing. Okay. So if your listeners are listening to this and they're looking for a way to act on it uh, and invest according to it, is it seems like it's kind of cumbersome. They have to go through all the 10 Ks, 10 Qs, you know, by hand looking to sort of add up all this stuff. Is there it's, an easier way to do it? No, it's not simple. You know, we run a fund based on it. Uh, Epic runs a few funds. There's I believe a shareholder yield fund in Canada now, but if you want to, if you want the actual data, you can do it by your hand. Uh, Ned Davis tracks some of it. Y charts is a good one. Uh, one of the only ones they require a subscription. There's a European site called value-investing.eu. Wes's site at Alpha Architects. And then there's a handful of these kind of individual investor retail level screeners. So AAII has been a famous one historically. Portfolio one, two, three which I think they include dividends now. They used not to. Zacks, they used to be survivor biased. I think they're fine now. Of course, Bloomberg. And then there was one I wrote about a few years ago, but haven't looked at recently called Bloodhound System or Blood, Bloodhound something. So, But it's tough. It's not, it's, it's not as easy. And that's one of the reasons I think that it's not as popular. But we, you know, we, and here's another example. We used to look at Dogs of the Dow, which is buying the 10 highest yielding stocks in the dogs, which is out of 30. And it was a hugely popular strategy back in the 90s and, and before. But once that Michael O'Higgins published, the, I believe, the initial research, once that published, it also coincided early with when uh, companies start buying back more stock. And so that, that strategy hasn't worked since. But if you look at what we call the cash cows of the Dow or the cows of the Dow instead of the dogs, it's worked wonderfully since. And for the same reasons, because you're getting the high shareholder yield. It's not just dividends and, and avoiding the issuers as well. Well, cool. Look, uh, we're probably hitting our time limit. You know, we forgot last time, but we'll add it this time on something beautiful, useful, and magical. Jeff said he's tapped out officially on all of his ideas. So <laughs> I'll, we'll, I'll go think about it for next time. We won't pressure him into it. But mine is a insight I learned a few years ago that was kind of like a aha moment that almost embarrassed not to know. But I, I query people on this every once in a while now. And, and usually... The people that know it be like, yeah, you idiot. Everyone knows that. But at least half the room, when I say this, says, oh, man, I didn't know that. That's really cool. And so this is, it's a pretty simple one. But if you're driving, and this is probably in the last 20 years, so I don't think on older cars, and you look down at the fuel gauge, there's an arrow that points to which side the gas tank is on. And I didn't know that. And most people don't know that. I didn't know that either. I can't tell you how many times I've driven in a rental car, even my own car, which is even more embarrassing, but says a little bit about my aloof personality, gone into a gas station and not known which side I'm on. They had to back out and reverse and, and move. So it points to which side the gas tank is on. So try it out. Take a look. Unless you have a car from the 70s, it's probably updated. So uh, again, friends, leave us a review. Thanks for taking the time to listen. We welcome feedback. We did our Q&A episode last week, which we had lots of great questions, but please send more feedback at themebfabershow.com. You can always find the show notes and other episodes at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing. 